The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Luke, chapter 13. This is our third study. It's in Luke 13. Would you follow along with me in verses 1 through 5? This is God's Word, and God's Word is the truth. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell? And killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. So when a crisis occurs, either that which comes because of the curse of sin upon creation, we call that natural evil, or crisis crisis and catastrophes that occur because of our personal sins, we call that moral evil. Whenever those crises and catastrophes appear on the scene, and then, you know, really, I was just going back and trying to do some reading, which... Uh, historically, which is not a chore for me at all. I love to read history. And, you know, it's really only until the mid-20th century that these constant movements of plagues and fevers and wars and catastrophes were just regularly encountered. And while we regularly encounter what we call natural evils or the brokenness of creation with storms and volcanoes and tornadoes and all of that and the work that happens in this in the creation that's groaning to be delivered, uh, we also um, we we also have uh, experienced somewhat of a mitigation of other crisis and catastrophes. Our forebears used to go through all the time. I mean, one of the things I do is exegete cemeteries. I'll go someplace and just walk through a cemetery. And by looking at the cemetery, you can see what has happened in the society. Many times you'll see uh, the evidence of smallpox, the evidence of measles, the evidence of yellow fever, the evidence of all kinds of things as you go through the grave markers. And particularly note the number of children. It was commonplace until the turn of the century that when you had children, it was very much expected that at least you would not, 50% of them, you would not raise. 
that they would not make it through childhood. It's been amazing how those things have mitigated in our society, but yet we still face crisis and catastrophe. And here is a here is a that right now we're in a crisis of a of a virus that's not new. We've known about it since 1960, but now a new strain that is new that is has its lethality. And uh, and so people begin to ask questions, even as they do whenever some tragedy occurs or a catastrophe or uh, these crises occurs. There's one thing you can always count on. And every that is this. There will be a question. And that question is inevitable. That question is insistent. That question is continual. And that question that comes almost universally from everyone in one form or one fashion is this one. Why? why now, why, why did this happen? And the why is attempted to be answered in two directions. One in terms of science. The other in terms of morality. Why did this happen to them? Why has this happened to these? Why has this happened now? And so while there's the investigation of it, why scientifically, the really burning question is always, we, we, we inescapably will ask that question. So what would Jesus say? In the midst of a crisis, in the midst of a catastrophe, when that question is asked, what would Jesus say? Well, that's what I want to try to answer today. Now, what we've done is we've been in a series, Crisis and the Christian in Perspective. But in this overall series that we've been looking at and trying to address and trying to um, work our way through, I've attempted to do a couple of things. The first study was an overview. And so what we went to was one of the great texts on the power of God's grace in Titus 2, 11 through 14. And in that, it talks about how you live in this present age. And in this present age, Jesus said there will be famines, there will be earthquakes, there will be sickness, there will be death, there will be the poor, there will be, uh, there will be wars, there will be rumors of wars. He tells us these are the birth pangs that are telling us something new that's coming. And those things are going to be there. Now, how, by grace, do we respond to them? Well, here's what he says in Titus 2, 11 through 14 that we examine, and that's this, that we live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. By, his, by the presence and the power of His grace, the Holy Spirit at work, the Word of God guiding us, then when we encounter a broken world and the triumph of God's grace at work against sin, then we are to respond sensibly, righteously, and godly. In other words, we put it together this way. We trust God. But we don't tempt God. We live with prudence, but we don't panic. We live faithfully so that we might live fearlessly. Fear is an emotion that God's given us. You know, it's always said, when you fear something, you'll do one of three things. You'll either freeze, you'll flee, or you'll fight. One of those three things happens when you get fearful. 
But the Bible tells us that while fears are there for a reason, we are to address them with that which God has given to give us courage. What is the opposite of fear? Courage? No. Courage is the response when the opposite of fear is at work. What is the opposite of fear? Perfect love casts out all fear. That is, the love of Christ that fills us addresses our fears so that they no longer control us, paralyze us, but now we are controlled by the Spirit of God so that we can deal with the issues sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And then we said, well, let's go look at a lesson, a, a case study uh, in the Scriptures. And so we went to take a look at Joseph. At the end of Jacob's life, when the brothers are now in Egypt and, 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 and Joseph is the premier, uh, prime, well, let me put it this way, he's the prime minister of Egypt. He's just second in control, vice president of Egypt. But as he is in control, they come to him fearful. Now that father's dead, don't, they're concerned that he, because he has the power to do away with them in a moment. And when they come to him and ask him for mercy, he says to them, don't fear. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. There's the doctrine of God's providence that we just confessed. Is that God is sovereign over this. You were responsible for the evil that you did. You've now confessed it. You've now turned from it. You've now repented. But here's what I want you to know. I realize that God's providence has been superintending to bring about this very thing. The salvation of many is what he says. And out of that, we learn something very important. I want you to learn it. Please learn it. And that is this, is that God's providence is not singular. God's providence has multiple providences. God's providence overall has multiple providences. And in a crisis and in a catastrophe, God... He's capable. You can't. Please don't multi. Please don't text and drive. You can't multitask. But God can. God does. In his providence, he has multiple providences. Not only was he working in Joseph, he was working in Pharaoh. He was working in a jailkeeper. He was working with Potiphar. He was working on the brothers. He was working on, ja- on, on Joseph's uh, father, Jacob. Not only was he working on people, he was working through events to bring a people down to mature them, mobilize them for 430 years in Egypt where he would bring them to the promised land. Not only was he working in multiple people and multiple events, but he was working for multiple purposes to establish his covenant people, to bring a covenant nation through which he'll bring a seed, to bring a redeemer. He is multitasking in multiple promises, providences in people, events, and purposes. But I thought today for our case study, we would go to Jesus, who does a case study for us. Notice what it says. It says, at this present time. You see at the beginning of that verse that I read, there were those some present at that very time. Now, what is that very time? All right, let me give you the time. Jesus has left Galilee, Luke 9. He set his face to Jerusalem where he is going to die. This is not his first trip, but it is his last trip that he will make from Galilee to Jerusalem. And he's on his way and he's gone down by the way of the River Jordan. And he has come up from Jericho and he is heading up to 
Jerusalem. All along the way, he has taught, he has given parables, he has given talks, he has given sermons, uh, he has given, he has done miracles, he has done a variety of things, and crowds keep increasing as he ascends up the hills uh, to Jerusalem from Jericho. And at that very time, they be, they come to him with a question. Why? It's a why question. Look at what he says, what they say in the text. They said, they told him, hey, the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What, what about this? Jesus knows what they're asking. They're asking this why question. So he answers, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you see what he's saying to him? This is very simple. It's very pointed. It's very uh, insightful to what Jesus is dealing with. He knows what they're asking. The Galileans that Pilate killed took their blood and then mingled their blood with the sacrifices, the holy sacrifices that were made. What you're asking is, why in the world would that happen to them? Unless, it's a moral question, unless they were worse than other Galileans. Of course, they expect Jesus, who is, what, childhood, raised, the majority of his ministries, where? Galilee. That he would be familiar with this event that happens within the governorship of Pilate. Now, Pilate was a very, this is not surprising. If you go read extra biblical uh, literature on the history of Pilate, you'll see that he was, a, he was a very cruel man. And so he now on sacrifice day takes their blood and he mingles it in. And he's clearly making a statement to this population. Who, who would seek to rise up and revolt against Rome. He is, this is what we call deterrence. This isn't justice, this is deterrence. And so they're asking, why would they suffer this way? All the, the, here are people that want to obey the law. Here are people that want to obey the word of God. They're wanting to make sacrifices, but they die. Is there something we don't know? Are they worse than the other Galileans, Jesus? You see the inevitable question, the insatiable inquiry. Why is that? Folks, let me tell you why it's there. It's not going to disappear. Every tragedy, every crisis, every catastrophe, people are going to ask why. They're going to come to Christians and ask you why. You believe that there's a God. You believe that God is sovereign. Why would God allow this? Why would this be in any way in the design of God? It, they can't help themselves. They're made in the image of God. Imago Deo. They know there's something called eternity. It's in the heart of a man. They know there's something called morality. They know that there are consequences to sin. So when they see dire consequences, they automatically are asking the question, is this because of their sin? This isn't the first time it's come to Jesus, has it? You remember his disciples? There's the blind man. They encounter the blind man. And what did the disciples say to Jesus as they look on? Him? Is he blind because of his sin or his mother and father's sin? Why is he blind? And they're asking a question, is this a consequence of his moral evil? Now, let's be quick to say it certainly can. 
I mean, if I go out and get drunk and lose control of a car, guess what? I'm responsible for that consequence of that wreck. And it did so because of the moral evil of drunkenness. But is there the automatic assumption that in each and every one of these crises, that must be their, the person that's in the midst of it, it must be because of their moral evil? That's what they're asking him. How does Jesus answer them? Well, first of all, he clarifies the question. He said, oh, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Then he goes, he, so he clarifies their question. You're asking why. And so then he goes to this question and then he asks them a question. Don't you love the way Jesus will answer questions by asking questions? So he says to them, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? I find it interesting. He has just left Galilee. He is on his way to Jerusalem. They bring to him this this national crisis and catastrophe of the Galileans who had been put to death by Pilate. And now, and then he says, well, what about the one, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. What about the one that happened, the scaffold and they were working on the, in the pool of Siloam? I've stood there uh, in both places where this happened, now, where the Galileans were uh, put to death and their blood was mingled. It's right there above the, it's, it's this large mountain that's right there above the uh, city of Magdala. And um, uh, Migdal is the area. And then I've stood there and in, in right there in the area of the Pool of Shalom where the scaffold fell and then these 18 men died. And so he's asking them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? These Are they worse in Galilee? Are they, the, are they worse than the ones in Jerusalem? Then he repeats, no, I tell you. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, their question is why. And you know the real part of that question. People even write books on this. Bad things can't happen to good people. So are these bad people? And are they worse bad people than other bad people? And is that why that happened to them? But what's the real question? Is the real question, why do bad things happen to bad people unless they're worse than other bad people? Or is the question, these things that happened to them, does that show us that they're bad people, but it didn't happen to us, so we must be good people? Why do bad, good things, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Here's the real question. It really has two sides to it. If you're hearing Jesus, what he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What, did he, what he's saying to them, you ought to be asking the question, why does anything good happen for me? I like the way Dr. Murray said it, and I'm paraphrasing to the way that I say it. Anything that you experience, anything that you experience on this side of hell 
and perishing under the judgment of God and the wrath of God righteously for our sins. Anything we experience is grace. God's grace is evident because what we're experiencing is temporary, measured. It is not the unmeasured wrath of God, which hell is the declaration of. God's grace is mingled in it. God's grace is all around it. And one aspect of God's grace is God's gracious purpose in the crisis and in the catastrophe. In other words, Jesus is telling them, your question should not be, why was their blood mingled with the sacrifice? Why did the tower fall on those 18? Your question ought to be, why was my blood not mingled? Why was, why did that tower not fall on me? That's really the question. And the reason he says is this. God is calling to you from the crisis and the catastrophe. This measured judgment of God, this measured consequence of a fallen world, this measured temporary consequence that's present is a megaphone of God's gospel preaching. Repent, or you will likewise perish. The real answer, not only is there an, a real question, but there's a real answer. And the real answer is this, my friend, there are no good people. There is none good, no, not one. The real answer is that God's judgment rightly should fall upon each one of us right now. But the fact that it didn't is the call from the crisis and the catastrophe. Repent or we will likewise perish. My friends, everything that we experience on this side of hell has been mingled and saturated with God's grace. In the crisis and in the catastrophe, it is the reminder that sin costs death, that sin brings judgment. But yet this crisis and this catastrophe that's short of the judgment day and the lake of fire, this catastrophe, this crisis is the patience of God calling us to repentance. We make fun of preachers all the time. Oh, that's one of those turn or burn preachers. And to some degree, you're ridiculing Christ. That was his message. Repent or perish. Out of his love, he has come to rescue the sinner.
And even in the crisis and the catastrophe, he is calling, Sinner, leave your sin and come to me. I am your Redeemer. So here is your takeaway. In the providence of God, catastrophe and crisis have multiple providences in his sovereign designs. But now listen to this. Each one shares a foundational and urgent message. Repent or perish. Each one shares a, a message. Repent or perish. That's, what the, that's what's consistent with each and every one of them. So in the midst of this, here is God's grace and God's call to you and to me. And that grace and that call is repent or perish. And if we repent and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, then we don't perish. And praise God, we've got a Savior. Don't you remember John 3.16? Listen to it. For whoever believes... In Christ, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Pastor, how do you know when people have turned from their sin? And put their trust in Christ. Well, it's not because all of a sudden they become sinless. But they do develop a deep desire to sin less. They do develop a great desire to worship God with his people. I mean, why is it? Here we are, ten people assembled in, like this because of the social and medical limitations. Why is it that in a gathering like this... Someone like me is willing to sing with all of my might, with no ability to sing with all of my might. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's because I'm not going to perish. Jesus took my judgment. The wrath of God fell upon him in my place. I'll tell you another thing that marks out those who have repented and put their trust in Christ and will never perish. Not only do they love that Christ, they love his word. They love to hear his word. They love to hear the gospel of grace and preach. They don't sit over that word. They sit under that word. Can I tell you something else they do? Out of their thanksgiving for being delivered from the wrath to come. And if you think these crises and catastrophes are fearful, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God without Christ. That's why, having been delivered from the judgment to come, and loving others, we must tell them, repent 
and come to Christ who died for you. This whole moment opened up with a question, didn't it? Jesus, the Galileans that Pilate killed and mingled their blood with sacrifices, were they worse than other other Galileans as they spoke to the Galilean, Jesus? In just a few short days, Pilate again, on the day of sacrifice, will mingle the blood of a Galilean with the sacrifices in Jerusalem. By God's sovereign decree, Pilate will hand Jesus over to the cross. But this isn't the blood of any Galilean. This is the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Turn from your sin that you will not perish. Every crisis bears God's call to you. Turn and put your trust in Jesus. Turn from sin, self, and the world and turn to Christ who saves us with his redeeming blood and his perfect righteousness. Let's pray. Would you just take a few moments in silent prayer, please, considering what is our Savior saying to you? What is he communicating to you? In the midst of a crisis, his providences are multiple. He's doing many things in people and places and events, and he has multiple purposes. But there is one clear, unmistakable call from every crisis, including this one. And Jesus has enunciated it for us. Repent of your sin. And put your trust in Christ. That you will not perish under the wrath of God. And the way has been made for your salvation. For the same Lord of glory who will sit as judge has already come and poured out himself on the cross. That you may not perish, but have everlasting life. Would you take these moments and turn from sin with your eyes upon Jesus. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at 
briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.